Psalm 51. We're taking just a pause in our Ecclesiastes study. I wanted to uh, look at a message that is very, very application geared towards us and and uh, it revolves around joy. And uh, I've titled the message really out of the text of verse 12. This is a very well-known Psalm of David. How many of us have read this Psalm? All right, I see some hands. So if you haven't read this Psalm, then you're about to hear it. Uh, so uh, this is a, this is a a particular psalm of David that has always blessed my heart, and I pray to bless you as well. Uh, but uh, I've titled the message, Restore to Me the Joy of Your Salvation. And that really is a prayer from David to the Lord, and you'll see why he prays that. And I think there's some important application for us from this passage. And so let's read Psalm 51. I want to begin in verse 7, and we'll come down through verse 12 as we just uh, look at this section. And then we'll, I'll back up a little bit later and look at uh, the verses before it as well. But notice in his prayer here, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. The subject in focus tonight is joy, and we think about that. How important is joy to the Christian life? Well, I think we all know it's, a, and it's an important uh, fruit of the Spirit, as we look in, in Galatians. Uh, where does joy come from? Joy comes from the Lord, doesn't it? So it's not something we conjure up ourselves, that we fabricate ourselves, but joy is something that is of God. And so joy is a virtue that every Christian is blessed with because of their relationship to Christ. It is God's will that His people be filled with joy, that they be joyful people. That's something we need to recognize always. And though we as believers should always have joy in the Lord, have you ever found yourself lacking joy in the Lord? I think we all probably have come to that point in our life at some time. Many Christians lack joy today, and that is evident in the lives that they live and how they conduct themselves and how they manifest themselves. There's many Christians who we could say have lost their joy. They've lost their joy. But joy is something, thankfully, as we read the Scriptures in this text and others, joy is something that can be lost but also can be found again can be renewed, can be restored, as David asks here. See, we find this truth in the life of David. And this particular message really is going to center around a point in David's life and look at him almost like a character study and a little bit of a glimpse of him. But David, and we all know David, David, as great as he was in the Scriptures, he still was just a man, wasn't he? He wasn't supernatural. He wasn't super special in the sense that he had something other than other people have. Other than that, he knew the Lord. You see, every great man or woman that we read of in the Bible, regardless of what the Lord used them to do, they were still fallen human beings. They were still people, just like you and I. People just like you and I that still had a sinful nature they contended with. They had their own temptations, their trials, their afflictions, their sorrows, their pains, their challenges, and their downfalls. And what do we know of David? What is he known to be as? What's one of the markers that we think of when we think of David? He is a man after what? God's own heart. He's the only man that really you get that gives that description in the Bible. God gives him that description. He's a man after my own, my own heart. 
But despite this description of him, you know there's a time, and probably more than once, when David lost his joy in the Lord that he had had. His life, I think, is a great study for us as believers. We can identify closely with him. Uh, But when we think about David and we think about our own life, we need to recognize that it's very possible for us to lose our own joy in the Lord as well. Perhaps it's missing even right now. If it is, I promise, I don't have a clue about it. This is just God's direction for message tonight, all right? Some people think that the preacher spies on them throughout the week, and so when the message comes up and it hits home and, oh, that preacher knew what I was doing or what I was thinking, uh, rest assured, I'm too busy to follow you all around or know what you're thinking. Uh, but uh, So understand that uh, what God brings to the pulpit, it's always of his order, and it's, it's not my own. But let's think about our joy for a moment. Do we have the joy of the Lord? If you're lacking the joy of the Lord, I want you to know there's a reason that that joy is diminished, and there's also a way it can be restored. So notice with me in our notes here tonight, I want you to see firstly that David knew the joy of of salvation. He knew it. He knows this. He knows that the joy of the Lord's salvation is. And so for something to be lost, you have to first have possessed it, right? Right? And so he knew what the salvation of the Lord is. He knew what the joy of the Lord is because here's a couple things about him. Number one, or letter A, is that David, he is a converted man. He's a converted man. Now, understand that there's no such thing as the joy of the Lord if someone has never believed in the Lord. You cannot know the joy of the Lord if you've never been saved, if you've never been converted, if you've never been born again, if you don't have faith. In Christ. So you look at verse 12, and what does David call this joy? He calls it the joy of what? Of your salvation. So there is a joy of the salvation of the Lord. So so what he's speaking of can only be known through salvation, which is in the Lord, which belongs to the Lord. As we're going to find out very plainly through the book of Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's of Him, it's from Him, it's through Him. Uh, And so it's ultimately unto him for his glory. So the kind of joy I'm talking about here is about the joy that comes along with salvation. Now, many people in this world may find or experience some kind of happiness, but happiness is not the same thing as joy. Happiness largely depends on what happens to you. It's very circumstantial. Uh, If things are going well in your life, then you're happy. Or if things went good this day or that day, then you're happy. But joy is so much deeper than happiness. Joy is not founded upon circumstances. It is founded upon truth. It is founded upon the very person and character of Christ and God and who He is. That is where joy is rooted. So joy, it flows from the salvation we have in Christ as seen in people who have come to know Christ. Now, here's one example that I'll give you. The Ethiopian eunuch, I think, is a good one. There's others in the scriptures that we could look at. But the Ethiopian eunuch, he was you know, traveling on his road back to Ethiopia, back down to Africa from Israel. He'd been up there to worship, and he's reading in Isaiah, and he doesn't understand what he's, what he's reading about. Isaiah 53, about Christ crucified, the prophet foretold. Well, Philip, God took Philip there to tell him about Jesus. This is Jesus. He preached to him Jesus. And really what this brought, brought about was the conversion of the eunuch. He said, what hinders me to be baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. So believing, which is salvation, comes before baptism. 
And here's what we find is after he's baptized in Acts 8.39, when they had come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried away Philip, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way doing what? Rejoicing. This eunuch has joy in his heart because he has met the Savior in his heart. Now understand that, that, that it wasn't his baptism that saved him. His salvation is prior to the baptism. The baptism is just an outward identification with Christ. It's an outward following of submission that you're identifying with his death, burial, and resurrection. And so it's a picture of what happened internally in your heart through faith. And so his conversion of heart and identification identification with Christ, he has joy in this. He's come to know the true Christ, know the salvation of the Lord because Christ is the one who is crucified for him. Now, I, I give my own illustration or example in this. When I was young and realized I needed to be saved, the conviction of God's Spirit was heavy upon me. Anybody else identify with that? When you realize that you needed to be saved, that you were accountable to God for your sin, and you're worthy of the judgment. And so at seven years old, God had convicted me of my need of salvation. Now, when you're under conviction about the need to be saved and your condemnation without salvation... That's not a joyful or peaceful experience, is it? In fact, it's somewhat miserable because your fallen nature is fighting against the truth. But ultimately, in the end, who wins that battle? Uh, It's God. It's God. He brings his own to himself, and so he, he brings about conversion. And I remember when I was converted there in my own house that I knew that I was saved. My faith was in Christ. I'd been born again right there, ran to the kitchen, and... I just had to tell mom, mom, I just got saved. And uh, then I said, I need to call tell somebody. <laughs> call the preacher. So I made her call the preacher. I told the preacher I got saved. I said, well, I need to call my aunts and uncles. Call them. I want to tell them I got saved. Uh, I had been under conviction for a little while, and so the relief of knowing for sure I was saved, my faith was in Christ, there was a joy in that. And it was a joyous occasion that I had to tell somebody else about it. And, uh, you know, that's an illustration of my own experience. You may have uh, one that's, that's a little different, but it should be the same in the sense that you're saved only by faith alone, in Christ alone, because of His grace alone, right? Uh, and so we think about joy that accompanies salvation. We think about why it accompanies salvation. Why is salvation a joyous thing? Because the moment a person is saved, they are born again. They're not a same creature anymore. There's something that happens internally, your new birth. Jesus said in John 3, what did he say to Nicodemus? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's another way of saying, that's the, another way you'd say that is regeneration. There's something that has happened in your heart, you've been transformed. You see, there's joy with that. There's joy because you've been forgiven of your sin. All of your sin, past, present, and future, that was upon your account that you deserve to be condemned for, you have been forgiven of those. And the blood of Christ has washed you clean and, and, and set you on a new path of life. And you, you have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You've been delivered from hell. You've been delivered from the judgment of God. And so there's so many things we could look at that, that bring us joy, but essentially it boils down to this, that there's an eternal change that takes place. And here's another great thing. Every time a sinner believes on Christ, repents, there is joy in heaven among the angels, Jesus teaches. Luke 15, 10. 
He says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So it's a joyous occasion both down here and up there uh, when, when God's own are brought to himself. So think about yourself. Think about the joy that salvation has brought to you and it should have brought to you in your life because joy is central to what salvation, accompanying salvation. So David, he had believed in the Lord. He knew uh, he was a converted man who knew the joy of the Lord. And if you're saved today, you've known it too. But not only that, letter B, is that David, he was also a consecrated man. He's a converted man. He's one who's, who's one of God's own. But he's also a consecrated man. He's a man who feared God. He's a man who walked with the Lord. Now, David wasn't perfect. By all means, he had a great love for the Lord. When Samuel was asked, or tasked, really, with finding a new king, what kind of man did God want the king to be over his people? Samuel said to Saul, the present king, who was about to be stripped of his kingdom, Samuel said to him in 1 Samuel 13, 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That's the first description of David through the prophet Samuel. The Lord has sought out for him a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. So this man who is after the heart of the Lord was none other than a young man named David. He's just a young guy. He's not even an older guy yet, right? You see, we we see David's heart early on. And I think it's first really seen in, in his encounter with the Israelites and really with Goliath. You remember when Goliath stood in the valley and uh, the Israelites were on one mountainside, the, the, the Philistines were on the other side, and Goliath, that giant of a man, about nine foot six, is out there challenging them, right? And all of the Israelite troops and even Saul himself, they're hiding on the mountainside, shaking in their boots. They have no courage, no strength, no nothing to go out and fight this dude. But not David. Here's what always stuck out to me about David in this encounter, where you see his love for the Lord and his, his being consecrated to him. And in 1 Samuel 17, 26, the Bible says, As David came upon that area and he's talking with them, it says, David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You know what David's concern here is? It's the honor of God. It's the honor of God. He looks at the Israelite army, and they're all hiding on the mountainside. And David's concerned about the, about the honor of God because this giant is, is, is dishonoring God. And so David loved the Lord with all of his heart. He walked with the Lord with all of his heart. He knew the joy of the Lord's presence in his life. And friend, understand that when a Christian is walking with God and abiding in Christ, there is great joy in the Lord. Fellowship with Jesus is a joyous thing. Fellowship with Christians is a joyous thing. Friend, it's, it's, it's kind of recharge in our joy every time we gather, just to be among God's people. But even more so than that, understand that walking with Christ, being near Him in His Word and in prayer and, and, and obedience to Him, that is, that is a joyous thing. Remember what Jesus was teaching His disciples not long before He went to the cross? In John 15, he's teaching them about himself being the vine, and they are the branches, and except they abide in him, they can do nothing, right? And he says if they abide in him, they'll they'll bear much fruit. But at the end of this section, 
In John 15, 11, here's what he says to them about all this. He says, these things I have spoken to you, why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see, what, what Jesus is laying out for them is how they ought to live as a Christian and how they ought to serve him as a Christian. But he's also showing that all of this is meant to fill you with joy. Joy is God's design for his people. Paul the Apostle lays that out plainly again in a similar way. In Galatians, he urges them to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh, right? And he tells them what the fruit of the Spirit is. John 5, and 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, and second on the list is joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. So you understand that walking in the Spirit Walking in step with the Spirit is one way that joy is produced in us. It's a fruit of the Spirit. So we, we ought to ask ourselves these kind of questions. Are we walking in the Spirit? Are we abiding in Christ like we should be? These are important elements of having a joy-filled life. Now, David was a man who walked with God. He knew without a doubt what the joy of the Lord was. But here in Psalm 51, what do we read? He's praying and asking the Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Why would he ask such a question? Notice with me, number two, is that David lost the joy of his salvation. He knew it, but he also lost the joy of his salvation. You say, well, how could a man after God's own heart lose his joy? Well, I think there's a couple things I want to point out here with this. The first one is this, is that he drifted from a biblical perspective in how he was supposed to live. He drifted from a biblical perspective in his life. And we see this in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We see really the downfall of David here that sparks later Psalm 51. Psalm 51 flows out of what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Look at chapter 11, verse 1 through 5. Notice this. In the spring of the year... The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. That's a key point. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is, this, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. You understand that David at this point in his life, he is very powerful, and he is a very prominent king. And when they went to war at this time, Israel had ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. David here, he has had great success. He's got great wealth, and he's in charge of leading God's people. And it's here in this moment of his life where he becomes weak, very weak. Why is that? One reason, I think, is because he was so successful. He was so successful. Do you know what the danger of success is? 
we can become confident in ourselves. Victory can in turn bring our own defeat because we get high-minded. Because we think, oh man, I'm just coasting along pretty good right now. We can let victory defeat us. Because we forget or neglect the Lord's hand in our lives. See, when we begin to see things through the lens of our own capabilities, our own possessions, our own accomplishments, we are then on a very slippery slope to losing our joy. Now, let me note something here. That David and nobody else ever loses salvation itself. There is a difference in losing the joy of your salvation and the idea of losing your salvation. Let me let you in a little secret. If it was possible for you to lose your salvation, you would lose it. You know how often you'd lose it? Every day. (laughs) Because there's not a day that goes by that you don't sin in one way or another. The very point of eternal salvation is that it's eternal, not temporal. All right? It's eternal life that you're given, not temporal life. And so understand that. Joy of salvation is not salvation itself. Joy is altogether a virtue and fruit that we lose when we veer off. doesn't change our status of salvation. But here's what we find here. Because of this success and power and pride, perspective can turn us away from the eternal to the temporal. Our dependence can easily shift from the Lord to our own selves. And that is exactly what you see happening with David. Now, Jesus gives a great example of this, too, and I want to read this to you. This has always stuck out to me in in Luke's gospel, Luke 10, and verse 17 through 20, just for a moment. Luke 10 and verse 17 through 20. Jesus, there's an occasion in the ministry of Christ where he sets aside 70 or 72 disciples that, that go out and preach, and he gives them power to cast out devils and do miracles and all sorts of great things. And they come back from this journey. And what Jesus teaches them, I think, is very interesting. If you look at verse 17 of Luke 10, he says, Then 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, look, look how they return, with joy, right? With joy. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see that? I love that. Because there's so many people that want to, they look for joy in what they can do, right? My joy is not in what I can do, because without the Lord, I can't do anything. My joy is in the fact that I'm saved and my name is written in heaven penned in the book of life from the foundation of the world, friends. What what a joy that is. And that's what Jesus says. They come back with joy, and Jesus, in a compassionate way, kind of pops their bubble a little bit, right? That Don't rejoice in the power that you have power over the spirits, evil spirits. Rejoice in this, that your name is written in heaven. That is salvation, friends. That is salvation. And so that's where we see the disciples need to rejoice in. That's where we need to rejoice in. Now, coming back to David for a moment, he began to focus on his power and his pride and his position, which ultimately leads to him wanting whatever pleasure he desires. That's what he boils down to. 
He allowed pride to creep in, distorting his perspective, which in turn distorts his actions. Because our perspective is everything. How we view life, how we view the Bible, how we view God, how we view ourselves is everything. If we don't see things through the right lens, meaning through God's Word, we can easily drift away in our flesh. Because the world and the flesh are always tugging to pull us away from where we need to be in our Christian life. Any of y'all ever been out on a float on a nice day, on, maybe on the ocean or even on a lake? And you just sit there on that float and you close your eyes. You're just enjoying, you know, the water and the sunshine and all that. And before you know it, you open your eyes. Or maybe if you want to sleep, you wake up. That, that might be a little dangerous. But you notice that you're not in the same spot that you were when you first got on there. Right? I've done that a few times. Made me a little nervous. Like, I better get closer to shore, right? I heard, of all these, heard about all these rip currents and things that can take you out to sea. But you little by little drift further from where you were. And you didn't realize it because you're just kind of coasting. You're just kind of enjoying the moment, right? Well, that's what happens if we're not paying attention to our life, our Christian life. Our flesh and the world, they will pull us aside and we will not even realize it if we're not focused on that. If we're not uh, intentionally, intentionally seeking to walk with Christ. All of us have to pay attention to ourselves with this. Now, here, I've always loved this verse, what Paul told Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.16, notice what he says to Timothy. He says, keep a close watch on everybody around you. You didn't read that with me, did you? Keep a close watch on who? Yourself. <laughs> now, it's easy to keep a close eye on everybody else. Man, look at what so-and-so's doing. Man, they're veering off. Look at what so-and-so did. Man, I tell you what about them. That's the easy part. The hard part, what about me? Where am I at? Where am I at? He tells him to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or doctrine. Persist in this, for in so doing, you will both save yourself and your hearers. In other words, you'll keep yourself on the right track by paying attention to the teaching and to yourself, what the Word of God teaches. All of us have to do that. So a biblical perspective keeps in mind who we are, who the Lord is, what He's done for us. It keeps the gospel at the center of our life. I think it was Martin Luther who said, said something along these lines that we need to preach the gospel all the time. Why? Because we, we forget about the gospel all the time. Coming back to hearing the gospel message of what Jesus has done for us. We easily drift away from that. And so David, you understand, he had times in his life where, where he's hungry for the Lord and he's wanting to be close to the Lord and, and wants to draw near to the Lord. He said in Psalm 42, 2, my soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? Have you ever had moments in your spiritual life where you're just thirsty and hungry for more? But then you come to times in your life, in your Christian life, and you don't really have that hunger like you once did, that thirst like you once did. That shows us how that hunger can wane, how we can get more comfortable in the world. We can get confident in our own flesh. This is why we see David do what he does in this text. And even later, when Nathan the prophet comes and gives him this parable about this guilty king who had stolen from somebody who was innocent and did all this evil, he gives a parable and says, David, what's your verdict? And David, <laughs> David says, he gives a guilty verdict to this dude. This guy deserves death. 
Nathan says, this guy is you. He says, you're the man. Light bulb moment for David. Light bulb moment. He was so blind, even in that parable, as the prophet comes and tells him about what he's done, he was so caught up in his own self. You're the man. His perspective was blinded. And in it, he was misguided in his thinking, and he dove deep into his sin. Notice with me, letter B, that his, this, his, in his um, misguided biblical perspective and drifting from that, that led to this next point, is that he departed from biblical purity. He departed from biblical purity, and by all means, when you, the more your thinking veers away from the Bible, the easier you're going to fall into impure and unholy things. That's just how it works. You look at verse 2. The Bible tells us of 2 Samuel 11 and verse 2, it happened late one afternoon that David arose from his couch. He must have been having a, a couch day, right? And walking on the roof of the king's house, we don't walk on our roofs. Back then, their roof was like their deck or their patio. So just in case you're wondering about that, he's not like trying to scale a you know, slanted building. He's, it's normal. He came on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Now, I want you to take note of this, that David, in this moment, he is idle. He's idle. He should be out there with his army. Instead, he's at home, idle, doing nothing, not doing what he should have been doing. And it is in this idleness that David is tempted. Any of you ever heard the saying that an idle mind is what? devil's workshop, right? There is a lot of truth in that. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, some temptations come to the industrious, but all temptations come to the idle. All temptations come to the idle. So, so David at that moment, he had a choice. He could turn away and not look, or he could look and lust and then act if he decided. And we know what happens. David chose to act because he had drifted from purity in his heart, which led to impurity in his actions. Because everything that we do outwardly in our life first started inside. It all starts inside and flows outside. So David, knowing he's the powerful king of Israel, summons this woman to his, to his dwelling for one purpose, and that is to fulfill his pleasure. And in verse 3 through 4, we see how this plays out. But notice how far David has drifted here. One even told him, David, isn't this Bathsheba? Pretty sure she's the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah. David, she's married, is what they're telling him. Did that stop David? Nope. This shows you how blind he was, how consumed he was with his lust and pride. David pursued his pleasure and had it despite all that he knew about what the law of God said and what his counselors here are even telling him. The law of God says plainly in Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus takes that even further to the heart of the issue. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, he says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So that, that comes to the principle I just said. It starts in the heart and ventures on outwardly. So David's downward spiral began in the heart and led to great sin that would deeply affect him and another family. See, at the core of this, David's pride would bring him a fall that he did not want. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
Proverbs 16, 18 says. And someone rightly said this too. I think I put this quote in your notes. I don't know who said it, but it's always stuck with me. I think it's good to stick with all of us. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's how it works. That's how it works. So what happened after this? We know how the story goes. Bathsheba conceived by David. David tried to deceive Uriah into sleeping with her so that maybe it would look like it was Uriah's child. Uriah was more honorable than David and refused because of his army that was out, out battling. David had Uriah killed, took Bathsheba as his own wife, had the baby, and the baby was sick and then died. It's a sorrowful, terrible narrative and story. It's a terrible thing, one that greatly impacted David's spiritual life. And through this, what happens with David? David spells out in Psalm 32 what happens with him internally. Psalm 32, verse 3 through 4, listen to this, because this applies to the same, the same story and account. He says, For when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Selah. Doesn't that sound like a joyous description? Sounds like a joy-filled man, doesn't it? Nope. Not even close. He says when he kept silent, when he's refused to repent and confess, he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning. Day and night your hand was heavy upon him. You know what this is? This is the conviction of God upon his heart about his sin and his unrepentant state. Talk about a loss of joy. Christians, you know that that can happen to you too. Maybe you've experienced it. You see, God, God does not let his own children continue in sin and just get away with it. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful our Heavenly Father chastises us and doesn't let us just go on to our own ruin and damage in life. A.W. Tozer rightly said this, The Holy Spirit never enters a man and then lets him live like the world. You can be sure of that. There's a reason. Sin will always rob you of your joy. We see that clearly with David. So that brings us to our text again. Number three, we see that David knew the joy of the Lord, joy of salvation. We see that David lost the joy of his salvation. But now we see David, he desires the joy of salvation again. Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are really turning points for David in this spiritual narrative. After he had committed this adulterous affair, we notice letter A, that he repented of his sin against God. As you read through Psalm 51, you see David's recognition of this. Let's look at verse 1 through 4 just for a moment. You notice that he prays and says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What do you see here with David? You see that he's not holding anything back. He knows exactly what he's done. He feels the conviction of what he's done. 
He's not trying to hide it. He's not trying to justify it. It's a miserable thing to try to hide and cover sin. He sees where he drifted from God and followed his flesh. He recognizes that his sin is not some light matter, but a heavy one. Why is sin such a heavy thing? Here's why. Because in verse 4, he says, against you, talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, understand, our sins may affect other people and may be even against other people in a relational sense. But ultimately, every sin we commit, no matter what kind it is or who it involves, it is always against God. Always. Why? Because He is the Holy One, the only one who's holy. He's our Creator. He's the one to whom every person is accountable to. It is Him. You know, Joseph rightly said it this way. When he was tempted with adultery with Potiphar's wife, this wicked woman, trying to pursue him, make him be with her, he said to Potiphar's wife in that moment, Genesis 39, 9, he asked her a question. He said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? No, against God. He viewed this as what it really is. All sin is against God who created us, who is holy. And so David comes to see how his sin was and repented of it. In Psalm 32, the parallel passage, verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what happened as a result of that? And you forgave. You forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. So you think about, we think about our own life today. If we ever drifted away from God in our sin, is there sin in your life even that God's convicting you in your heart about? I don't know. But if there is, there's good news for you. Just as there is forgiveness for David, there is forgiveness for you in Christ. And only in Christ. John writes to the believers in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from some unrighteousness. Make sure you're awake. I know you all just ate. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it. That's a promise to those who are in Christ. It is given. Why would a verse like this be given to Christians? After all, we're already saved. We're forgiven eternally. In that sense, we're made righteous in God's eyes. Why would that even be needed for the Christian since we're on our way to heaven, right? If we're saved by grace, we're on our way to heaven, why can't we just live as we want and don't worry about it? Paul said, God forbid that we live that way by grace because of God's grace. But this verse is given because we as Christians, though we're saved and going to heaven because we're by faith trusting only in Christ, we still wrestle with a flesh that hinders our fellowship with God in this life. This is about fellowship. We still struggle with the nature of Adam that is in our, in, in our own sinful nature. See, the difference now is that our sin, our sin brings us pain and, and grief when it used to give us pleasure, you see, before you were saved, you really didn't care about your sins against God. But now in Christ, it's different now. They're serious. There's conviction about them. And so the great truth here is that God will forgive us of all our unrighteousness because of Christ's atoning blood. And so this forgiveness, what does it do? It restores fellowship with God. 
fellowship with him. Now, it does not save us again because you can't lose it again. You can't lose it. But it restores fellowship with him. There's a difference between relationship with God and fellowship with God. Relationship with God, you're born into his family, he's your heavenly father, that'll never change. Fellowship can change. Fellowship can change, just like in a human family. My daughter Jubilee and my son David and Spurgeon, they will always be my children. Nothing going to change that. But based on how they live, that might change some fellowship we have. Fellowship can change, but relationship will never change. And that's the way it is with the believer in God. The believer is a child of God. So once you're born into his family, you can't be unborn and out of his family. That's a permanent thing. But your fellowship is very important too. Your sanctification in this life is very important too. We need to keep that in mind because joy stems from this. So we think about this truth, and it's a wonderful truth. How many of us are thankful for 1 John 1, 9? I know I am. I use it pretty much every day. <laughs> I think you do too. But notice with me, letter B, that his, we see that he repented of his sin against God, but he also requested the joy of God. And here's the great thing, and one that think, brings joy to us, is the forgiveness of our sin, the removal of it. With repentance comes cleansing and restoration of joy. That's what David desired. He said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. You see, because his joy was restored and his fellowship with God was unbroken now, he once again could have a witness and be used of God the way he needed to be. Notice what he says as a result of this in verse 13. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. In other words, restore me so I can continue to be used by you. That's what we all ought to desire. You can see how important joy is to the Christian life. Our fellowship with God in the Christian life. It is a strength for us. This is what Nehemiah said to the people of Israel, and they're restoring the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah 8.10, he tells the people, Go your way, eat, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing already, for this day is holy to the Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is a strength to the people of God, rejoicing in Him. So if you're a Christian and you lack joy, maybe you know what's causing you to lack that joy. If you're still not sure... Ask the Lord to reveal that to you. That's a prayer he will answer. Ask God to restore it to you as David did. Because joy is what God wants you to have, and we need to have it in our Christian life as we go forward in our worship and service of him. So the joy of our salvation, as we look at this text, and we can look at other texts, we don't have time to, but the joy of our salvation, it surpasses all other happinesses this world could offer. Because there's nothing in this world that I would ever trade for the salvation I have in Christ. Not a billion, billion times over. The pleasures of the world, they're really not worth sacrificing the joy of your salvation. So do you know the joy of Christ's salvation? If you've never known the joy of the Lord, perhaps you need to be saved from your sins. You've never known what it is to be saved. If you've been saved, you know what it is to be saved. It's unmistakable. You need to see your sin for what it really is and Christ for who he is and what he's done and believe only on him. But if you have known this joy, you ought to ask yourself, am I walking in this joy? Do I have this joy? And if I don't have the joy of the Lord, what's wrong? Is there sin in my life that I need to recognize and repent of? Maybe I'm not been abiding in Christ like I need to. 
we ought to always, as Paul told Timothy, take heed to ourself. Take heed to ourself and pursue the joy of the Lord. Pursue a faithful and fruitful walk with Him because that's what we want. That is the abundant Christian life in, uh, in worshiping and serving Him tonight. So that will conclude our time in the Scriptures this evening. hope there's something within that text and the passages that we've read that has um, been able to be a benefit to you and you can glean from. And um, may we pursue the joy of the Lord.